The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Mark uh, chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 28 together. Mark 12, 28. That's right there towards the beginning of the New Testament, after Matthew and uh, before Luke. Over the next couple weeks, we are going to take some time and uh, revisit our vision and mission. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Paul told Timothy to stir up, or some translations will even say to rekindle, uh, the gift of God within him. And I think part of the reason for that is because Paul understood something about human nature that we are sometimes unaware of. Um, our hearts are much like a, a forge of fire, right? They can produce both good and evil motivations. Proverbs 4.23 bears this out when it says, uh, both good and evil things can come forth from the heart. And the truth is the difference often lies in whether or not we have stoked the coals of our hearts and fanned the flames of love and passion for God, or if we have left it untended and thus allowed it to grow cold. And so first of all, I'm going to give you our vision. And when I say vision, different organizations have different definitions for these words. When we say vision, we mean our goal. This is kind of why we exist, what we're here to do. For us here at Love City, it's to see as many people as possible meet, worship, love, and joyfully serve Jesus Christ. Uh, I've told you in the past, I, I'll give you a shorthand version of that because that's, that's kind of wordy for everyone to remember. We want to see as many people as possible meet Jesus, and uh, pretty much everyone can remember that. So that's what we're about. That's why we believe we exist and what we're here to do. Uh, a good question is why? I hope you're asking it. Why is that the vision? Uh, and we would say because we believe this is also the goal of God. Let me just read you this from 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We believe upon the heart of God is a desire for as many people as possible to hear the good news about Jesus and surrender to him because God is really about reconciliation and relationship with the people that he created. And so, of course, we know that happens through Christ and his finished work on the cross. And so that's why we're about telling people the good news about Jesus. Amen. Uh, our mission, the next thing in line, sorry, our mission, and, and so how do we explain mission? We would say our mission is the way we seek to accomplish the vision, right? So the vision is we want to see as many people as possible meet Jesus, and we're going to keep going on that uh, until the Lord tells us to stop. The mission, or how we accomplish the vision, is to love God, love people, and make disciples. Now, I hope you're asking why. Well, the answer is because we believe this is the mission that Jesus handed down to every single person and church who would follow him. To bolster that idea, I'm now going to read uh, the verses that we came to today. So that's Mark 12. We're going to start in verse 28, read to verse 34. And this is pretty much self-explanatory of why our mission is what it is, why we believe this is what Jesus has handed down for everyone who's going to follow him to do. Okay? Mark 12, verse 28, here we go. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, 
what commandment is the foremost of all? Right, so he's asking, what is the most important commandment? Uh, backstory, some Pharisees and others had come up, and they were essentially trying to trip Jesus up, get him to say something that would discredit himself, which of course never worked. It ended up making them look foolish. Uh, so just before that, they had asked him, well, should we pay taxes? Because they knew that was a tricky situation. Jesus shut that down. And then they come to this one, hoping that he's going to somehow make a misstep as he describes what is the most important commandment. Okay, and so here's the answer of the Lord Jesus to the question. You guys remember the question? What's the question? What is the most important, the foremost commandment? What is the most important thing we could focus on as people who are going to follow God? Okay, so this is a pretty important answer from the Lord of glory. Would you agree? All right, so let's, let's, let's kick in and, and, and really understand here. Let's perk our ears up. What is God saying through the mouth of Christ? The foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord... And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I'll just point out here because I don't know if I'll remember to later. It's interesting that in every account of this where the scribe stands up and asks Jesus for the most important commandment, Jesus gives him two. I think it's very important for us to understand that, and and there's a reason. You cannot separate these two commandments. They always go together, and that the truth of why that is is bore out in 1 John 4 when it says, how are you going to love God who you can't see when you can't even love your brother whom you do see, right? And so ultimately, loving God and loving people is always tied together. You can't pull them apart. How How many commandments did the scribe ask for? He wanted what? One commandment, the foremost. What did Jesus give him? Gave him two. You'll never see them pulled apart. They go together. It's really important to understand. This week we're going to focus on the supremacy of love and why loving God and loving people is so central to all that we do. You could almost stop with that verse, right? It's pretty self-explanatory at that point, but let's, let's fill it out. And part of, part of what I want to warn some of you against is... Um, You've probably heard a lot of sermons on love. If you've been here any amount of time, you've probably heard a lot about this specifically. I began by trying to encourage you with this idea that we have a desperate need to constantly stoke within ourselves and, and sometimes from the outside, by the help of God, have, have the flames of passion, the, the coals of our heart kind of blown upon and, and stoked up to be excited about the things that we should be excited about because we have a tendency... Um, to get focused on other things. I'll, I'll say it that way. So, because we have been conditioned to believe that new experiences and information are always more exciting and thus always better, you guys know that about yourself? That you, you have to fight this belief that you are constantly fed that some new experience or new information is going to be far superior to something you've already either heard or done or seen. Um, because that's true, because we have that conditioning, sometimes we miss the importance of stoking the coals of first and foundational things. Not understanding that without those things, the rest is going to be in vain. If we don't have first things first, if we don't have those in their proper place, and you continue to try to add more to it, it actually makes zero difference and does no good. Um, and, and trying to think about that, I, I, have any of you ever tried to light a fire and or been messing with a campfire for any amount of time? What happens is, I hope some of you have, because that's, that's a great experience. If, if you've never messed with a campfire, please find a way to do it, okay? 
You can come to my house. I have a little thing. We'll do it. Um, I, I need you to be able to relate to this if I use it again, okay? So nobody, nobody uh, leave here without letting me know if you need to light a fire for the first time. But anyways, here's what happens. You put all the stuff in there, and depending on how good of a fire maker you are, you pour gas on it or not, right, whether you're a cheater, uh, which a lot of times I am. But anyway, so you, you build that thing, you light it up, and, and you, you got to leave it alone for a minute. And then what happens is as, as whatever the fuel is, whether it's wood or whatever you're using, as that begins to burn and kind of break down, it, it, it'll, it'll fall down to the bottom and it begins to be a, a, a coal bed. And that, then at that point, you can add more fuel and those hot coals will then ignite more fuel and you can kind of keep your fire going. Um, the problem is if, if, you, if you light that fire, let the coal bed happen and then you just let those coals grow cold, you can, you can come afterwards, you could throw paper on it, you could throw more wood on it, you could throw more gas on it, you can do whatever you want to do. You can throw anything else you want on top of that thing, and it's going to not be a fire, it's going to be a pile. <laughs> and a pile's not that great, right? It doesn't provide warmth, it doesn't provide light, it's not doing any of the things that you were trying to accomplish. And this is what we do sometimes in Christianity, right? There are some basic things that God gave us to focus on. The, the beginning of our, like our salvation, the love of God, uh, loving him, loving others, these basic things, these are the beginnings of what happens when God changes a person. And sometimes what we do is we, we do one of two things. Either we, we let those things grow cold and then, and then keep trying to add more stuff onto it and we don't understand why the fire is not burning, or, or too quickly, we start tossing so much stuff on there, we didn't, get, we didn't get that other stuff time to take root, really understand the depth and importance of that, and we end up snuffing out that thing that God had already begun in us. And so, um, that's, we do that in Christianity. We, we do it when we get impatient with fires, we do it in Christianity. And the reality is, if, if those original foundational coals of what God began in you if they grow cold, man, if they grow dormant, if it's not, if it's not a part of, and, and foundational to the way that you love and serve God, the rest of the stuff, and when I'm talking about throwing paper on there or wood or gas, I, I think a lot of times that's, that's addition, you know, we'll, we'll forget about the basics of, of loving God and loving people, the things, that God, the things that kind of brought us to the dance, you know what I'm talking about? We forget about that stuff, and then we want to start adding, you know, let's, let's get a bunch of deep, more theology, and let's get some more knowledge. Let's keep throwing some more stuff on this, and what, why isn't it burning? Well, if those original coals aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, man, the rest of that stuff isn't, it's out of context. It's not even going to make sense. It's not going to accomplish what you're shooting for it to accomplish. Now, I hope, I hope some of you are thinking that, you know, the fire analogy is nice, but how about a verse to back it up? And if you are thinking that, you're a noble Berean, and I commend you. Well done. I got some verses. Praise God. I don't just have a fire analogy for you, okay? All right, so let's, let me read a couple of verses to you. In Matthew 24, verse 9, uh, the disciples had just asked Jesus, like, give us some signs, Lord, of like, what it's going to be like right before you return, finally. And so Jesus tells them this. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Not a good selling point for following the Lord, is it? <laughs> Uh, verse 10, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. The point there being... Uh, I'm giving you some scriptural backup for the 
potential and the reality that your love can grow cold. That foundational principle of, of love for God and love for people, it can grow cold. One of the, Jesus here, the context here is as, as difficulties increase and before his return, some people are going to jump out of this thing. Um, and to some degree, I think you're seeing that um, in our current context, right? As it becomes less and less fashionable to be a Christ follower and to say, yes, I actually believe that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God and I think we should obey it. As, as that becomes more and more to have a social cost as opposed to a social benefit, you're seeing more and more people kind of jump out of the thing and you know, choose to say I'm vaguely spiritual or whatever that looks like. Okay, let me read you another one. Revelation chapter 2, this is verses 1 through 5. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, it's Jesus speaking, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Doing pretty good so far, right? But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent." The church at Ephesus, friends, was a mature church with a whole lot going for it. They had strong convictions and theological depth. They had endured difficulty and refused to quit, but they had left their first love. And Jesus had a very serious warning for them. And I think we need to take heed to that and understand the tendency they had is a tendency we share. We are not immune to this. As a, as a matter of fact, every single one of us is prone to this. If every church and every Christian does not intentionally guard against this tendency for their love to grow cold or to lose their first love, they will. Let me say that again. If every church and every Christian does not intentionally guard against this tendency for their love to grow cold or to lose their first love, they will. This is not something you're going to do by accident. You have to understand there's a constant assault against the foundational, beautiful principles of loving God and loving people, his love for us, and the love that that stokes in us for him and for others. We have to continually stoke the coals and fan the flames of love in our hearts, and we need to remind ourselves and be reminded of the first and foundational, foundational elements of our faith. We need to remind ourselves, and we need to be reminded Okay? I'm here today to remind you, because I love you. So even if you thought you've heard this before, right? Even if you think you got all love all figured out, let me help you with something. You don't. You have not exhausted the well of all that it means that God loves us, that he calls us to love him, and he calls us to love others. We will spend all of eternity marveling at the depth of just those foundational, beautiful principles. And so don't let yourself fall into the trap of, Oh, I've, I've heard this before. I think I've pretty much got that figured out. I believe daily we should pray and ask God to help us see better, understand more what he means when he says, I love you, and what he means when he invites us to love him and when he calls us to love others. I think we should ask him how to understand it better and also how to obey it better because we're falling short in a lot of ways. Praise God. 
uh, we are loving in a lot of ways as well. But we're not done yet. There's always room to grow in this area. I have heard it said that we should not emphasize one attribute of God above another. For example, um, is God more holy than loving or more loving than holy? And I agree that we should not pit the attributes of God against each other because he is both perfect and infinite, okay? And so if his holiness is infinite and his love is infinite, then one does not dominate the other, but they all coalesce in perfect unity to make up the totality of his character. Did you track with that? We can't try to, we're not going to, is God's holiness or his love more, well, he's infinite, all of his character attributes are infinite and perfect, and so you're not going to figure that out. Ultimately, he's infinitely perfect in all that he is, and so those things are not in contest with each other. They all work together to kind of represent all of who God is. However, so let's not do that. Let's not try to say, well, is God's love more important or God's holiness more important? However, as it pertains to we who follow God by the grace we receive through Christ and our responsibility in light of that, I believe it is absolutely appropriate to lay out loving God and loving people as our highest priority. It's a big call. You track with me? You didn't fall asleep yet. I'm making big statements here, okay? So I want you to think about whether or not you buy that right now and be honest. I believe it's absolutely appropriate to say the highest priority of every person that claims to follow Jesus is to love God and love people. Now, let's see if we can back that up. See if I can back it up. Some of you might be saying, are you sure? I'm going to ask you to please judge for yourselves. This is in no way um, exhaustive in reasons or scriptures that I think would support that idea. But here's just a few, okay? 1 Corinthians 13.2 says this. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love... I am nothing. Let me pause for a second. Some of you do agree. Some of you already agree that loving God and loving people is the most important responsibility of every Christian. If you find yourself in that place, and you know what I'm doing right now is defending that premise, and you already believe that, the standard human tendency then is going to be tempted be tempted to disengage. I don't need this information. I already believe that. Let me say something to you. Then for you, dear one, what this is, is this should, be, this should be blowing upon those coals inside of you. This should be fanning the flame of love and obedience for God and understanding the depth of what this really means and how important it is. And so don't click out if you already believe this. Let this stir you. Because what we need to do is after we come to the, the, the intellectual ascent to say, yes, loving God and loving people is the most important responsibility of anybody that's going to follow Jesus, we then need to automatically judge ourselves as to whether or not the way we live and what we're doing and what we're saying, how we interact with people, bears out what we say we believe. All right? We need constantly to be reminded and we need to remind ourselves of, of these beautiful foundational truths, the importance, the supremacy of love, okay? So I'm going to start over again. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, that's a pretty cool dude, right? You understand what I'm saying? Somebody's got the gift of prophecy, that's rad, 
right? Knows all mysteries and all knowledge, right? We got a real deal Miss Cleo here, okay? Call them in now, but you're not getting the, 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 the fake stuff, right? Like they really know. That's okay. You're doing pretty good. And if I have all faith as to remove mountains, this guy knows everything, all mysteries and all knowledge, has the gift of prophecy, walks up to mountains and says, <clears throat> and out of the way they move, right? This is like a Christian superhero, is it not? But do not have love, I am nothing. Nothing. All of that counts for nothing. You getting why this is serious? This matters. We could have a Christian superhero, and if their motivation for all their superhero antics is not love, it means nothing. Mark 12, we were just here. I, I would throw in the bucket of reasons why loving God and loving people are the most important thing uh, we could focus on, and the biggest responsibility we have as, as Christ followers is because when the Lord of glory himself was questioned, he, have an, he had an answer, right? What's the most important commandment? King Jesus himself says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, case closed, pretty much, but we'll keep going. Romans 13.8, Paul flushes this out more, right? 13.8 and 9. He says that if you, if you fulfill the command, he says, oh, no man, anything but to love him, because if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you fulfill the whole law, right? How much of our time is focused on trying to figure out how to stop doing individual sins? And I'm not saying you shouldn't war against sin in your life. I'm not saying you shouldn't war against fleshful tendencies and, and, and the temptations of the enemy in a specific way. But do you hear the hope of what Paul says here in Romans 13? If you will love your neighbor as yourself, you'll end up fulfilling the whole law. Woo! What is, okay, so what does that mean practically? He, goes in, he, he starts to break it down for you because I'm like, well, Paul, how does that work? He starts to break it down. If you really love your spouse, are you going to commit adultery? You better believe you're not. If you really love your neighbor, you're going to covet their wife? Absolutely not. You're, you're not going to do that. If you really, really love somebody, by God's definition, are you going to steal from them? No, man, you're going to be looking to give to them. Run the list. Go all the way down. Every single specific thing God laid out in the law is contained within this royal law. To love God and love people. So much of our time, if, if we would... If we would stop exerting so much effort trying to wrestle with individual sins and we would back out and understand what we really need is an anointing of, of, of love and a belief in the power of the love of God working in us, we would understand that love vanquishes sin. If you will obey the royal law of love, you'll fulfill the rest. It's pretty important. Are we, I mean, are we supposed to obey? Yes, absolutely. We're supposed to obey everything God said. Paul said, if we will love our neighbors ourselves, we'll do all the rest. 1 Peter 4, what's he say? He says, above all else. It's a big, it's a big call, isn't it? Above all else, keep fervent in your love one for another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all else. Here's all else, and here's above that. And you can't get above that. So Peter, leader of the disciples, guys that roll, guy that rolled with Jesus, personally, probably one of the closest and for the longest, said, 
Okay, I've told you guys all this stuff. I've given you a lot of instructions. Here's some other things you need to think about. Above all that, though, above all else, keep fervent in your love one for the other because love's going to cover a multitude of sins. You go to James. James says that loving our neighbors ourselves, that that is, that is the royal law. And so what, am, what have I done here? I've, I've, just try, I've tried to skim and give you this idea that it doesn't matter who you ask. If you're going to go to the Bible as your authority for the question, what is the most important thing for a Christian to focus on? Which I think if you're going to ask the question, what should Christ followers do and emphasize, we should find that answer from his word. It doesn't matter who you ask. If you ask the master himself, which is kind of case closed, but you, okay, well, what about some supporting cast of that? Well, we've got Paul, we've got Peter, we've got James. Anybody else you go ask on the subject, what's the most important thing? It comes down to loving God and loving people. It answers all the rest. I realize all the connectivity is not there for you yet. It's not there for me, and that's why I'm, that's why I'm telling you we're not done with this yet. That's why I'm telling you we need to think about this forever because I don't totally get practically how Loving God and loving people in every situation does all that the Bible claims that it's going to do, that it answers all of the other situations, but it does. It absolutely will. And so I need to get better at that. I need to go deeper in love, not, not think I've got it figured out or I've, I've, I've heard enough about that and so now I can move on to something else. The coals of that need to be stoked forever before we're going to add anything else. Because if you add more knowledge and you add more theology and you add more whatever, these are not bad things, these are good things, right? But if you add more things to that fire and that original basic most important thing is, is not still hot and not still doing what it's intended to do, you're just going to snuff the first thing out, right? What does the Bible say? Knowledge puffs up with no qualifier, right? Love is always going to bring you to humility, and God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, but I'm doing, I can't have God oppose me, man. I'm struggling enough with my own stuff. And even with God helping me, I can't, I can't be working against him. And so I need to stay humble. Love's going to help me do that. Love's going to keep me there. I don't believe, friends, the supremacy of love can be denied. Loving God and loving people are the two greatest privileges and responsibilities of the Christian. This conviction leads us also to understand the importance of really knowing what this love is. What is it, what is God talking about, right? What, what does that mean when he says to love him and to love others? What does it mean when he tells us he loves us? What does that mean? Because there's a whole lot of junk out there surrounding that word. Some of it is the unfortunate result of the English language not doing as good of a job making distinctions for terminology that, that describes affections as the Greeks did. Okay, and so when, when you're reading your Bible, when you're in the New Testament in specific, and you're seeing places where God's talking about his love for us, our love for him, the call of, of God's people to love others in light of God's love, the word that's going to be used there is agape, okay? And that that is that word is... It's special when it comes to like historical literature. You don't see it very much um, outside of the Bible. There's only a couple, a couple times that it, it pops up in other historic texts. And, and part of what that tells you is it's, it's, it's part of how God, through the writing of his word, through the apostles and, and, the, and the disciples, 
there needed to be some different distinction, right? Because the Greeks already had other words that, that denoted affection, right? They had eros, which is like erotic, right? So that would be like sexual, everything that goes along with that. There's phileo, right? Which is like brotherly love. You've probably heard Philadelphia referred to as the city of brotherly love. That's why. That comes all the way out of a Greek word, and that's, that's, a, that's a brotherly affection, phileo, love. There's, uh, there's also less known, it's, it's pronounced like storge, but add, a, add like some Greek flair in there, and then it would be right. I can't do it. So it's something to that, to that, <laughs> to that effect, and that's like familial love, like long-term commitment-type love, okay? That's what that looks like. And so the, the, the Greeks had all these different words, and so they could use them where they belonged, and then this, this special, preeminent, beautiful, unconditional, powerful love of God, this was, this was agape. Part of why we struggle is love has become a very junk drawer word for us, right? That's, that's, a, that's a problem for us. That's part of why we can sit here, and, and I, can, I can plead with you to the degree that I am, part of what we have to jump over, a hurdle we have to get over to realize how important and beautiful this is all at the same time, is how much the word love for us doesn't denote what it means, right? Because in Greek, when you said agape, they knew, oh, that's the God kind of love that is, that is totally understood clearly through the cross of Christ, right? What, what, what did 1 John 3.16 say? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That word there, for sure, is that agape kind of love. It's the God kind of love. It doesn't come from us. It comes from him. But we get to share in it, right? Because we're his image bearers. And so they knew what they were talking about. This is, some, this is a level of affection. This is, a, this is not just emotional like those other ones. This is not just based on um, whether or not somebody does something that, that I like or don't like, right? This is, this is the profound and deep and beautiful love of God. This, this agape kind of love. And so that's, that's part of our problem, right? Because especially today, I don't know if it's always been like this or if we just got sloppy with it in the last several decades, but today, man, you can, you know, you can, you can love pizza, you can love a TV show, you can love your grandma, you can love your wife, you can love your kids, you know, um, you can love the shoes you got on, you could love uh, watermelon as your favorite flavor of gum. You know what I mean? We just, we just throw it out there and we don't have a good distinction, and that's, I, so I, and I'll stand alone forever on this. I don't care who thinks I'm splitting hairs about it or I don't know if that matters that much. We need a word. We need something that stands in a sacred place so that you understand when I say I love you, it doesn't just mean, well, I have some type of affection for you. It means what God means. We got to have something. And I don't know what other word it would be than love. So do what you want, man, but I think you should like that watermelon bubblegum a lot. But I think you should love your wife and love your mom and love your kids and love your God. You can do with that what you want. Even if we have a propensity at times to forget the importance of loving God and loving others, our enemy does not. And he will stop at nothing to keep us from it. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says we should not be ignorant of the devil's schemes. I think we are sometimes, but we shouldn't be. So I want us to consider a few obstacles that are constantly trying to keep us out of love. The devil knows love is important. The devil knows that loving God and loving people is the single highest call of the Christian. And so he's going to work against it. Here's a few ways that happens. 
The first is distraction. Distraction. And as we work through these three things I'm going to give you, I want you to think about how it applies to what Jesus said specifically. Because he didn't just say, love God, love people. We've shortened that, and and that's why we talk about this a lot, so people know what we mean when we say love God and love people. Um, Love's not just an emotion. Love is primarily an action. Totally uh, exemplified most beautifully and perfectly at the cross of Christ. The sacrifice, the, the... I'm going to do whatever it takes for the sake of those that I love, for their good. Their good is more important than my good. That's what we see Jesus doing at the cross. These are the types of things that begin to open up for us the treasure box of what God means when he says love, okay? But remember, so let's specifically, how it is the Lord Jesus called us to love. It says, the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I'm I'm back in uh, Mark 12. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So he breaks it down and he gives us these categories that all of these things should be bent towards, focused upon as the highest priority, loving the Lord our God. I was, and then, and of course, also loving people as a result of that loving relationship. Okay, so the first thing that steals away from our ability to do that and obey that is distraction. And I think distraction oftentimes is the way that Satan will steal our heart and our strength away from this task, this beautiful responsibility of loving the Lord our God. What do I mean when I say that? Well, first of all, um, I think distraction, that, that, that comes in a lot of different forms. I think for a lot of folks today, it's because they've bought the lie to some degree or another. Uh, the, the world's definition of success is something that they should pursue. And so for most people, that means some degree of monetary comfort and or security. Um, it, it, it can get wrapped up specifically into the career that is the vehicle for that monetary uh, security and or prowess, right? Um, and so that can... And, so, what, so I'm, I'm saying the distraction steals away the heart because Jesus said, where well, your treasure is, your heart is also, right? And so all of that, right, this idea that you are going to be measured, and, and I, know, I know and I believe that most of you don't believe this. I'm, I'm, talk, I'm, I'm trying to cover the whole thing, though, the ways we are distracted. And I think sometimes even though we believe things, we still need to examine and see, is any part of me buying into this thing over here that I know isn't true, but I still get sucked into sometimes to varying degrees, Right? Do you ever find yourself measuring whether or not you've accomplished something in this life and or know that other people are doing it and so just kind of let that happen by, by how much you've accrued materially or, or how uh, your family's financial situation stacks up to those around you in your social sphere, in your neighborhood, at your job, whatever it is. This is a distraction. It gets us to then to spend our, the energy of our heart and also our strength we spend it towards that thing, right, to, to gain that success, which is a jacked-up definition to begin with, because uh, as we've said many times and we've gone over it, uh, one day, anything we can gain out of that pursuit um, is going to end up counting for nothing, right? Solomon talked about it. The richest dude ever said, chasing after that stuff, listen, I caught it. I had everything you've ever dreamed of. I had two of them. And when I clasped my hands around it, it was like chasing after the wind. I opened my hands and all the satisfaction, I thought I built gardens, I had stables, I had more horses and gold, I had, I had tranquility all around me. I built Eden. 
and it still didn't bring what I thought it was going to bring. Didn't have peace, didn't have hope, didn't have the connection with God that I was meant for. I think entertainment can also be a distraction that steals away our heart and strength, right? Because we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. I think a lot of our strength ends up getting spent on entertainment because we are, for some reason, terrified to be bored. And, and for some reason, I don't think we understand sometimes how much we are geared towards finding something to do to try to create some little temporary pleasure for ourselves. I am not saying leisure is ungodly in and of itself. It is not. The Bible actually encourages us to rest, take time for enjoyment, spend time with our families, um, do things that you know, we, can, we can enjoy God's creation. Yes and amen. But what does Satan always do with good things God gives us? Tries to twist it just a little bit or take it farther than it was intended and turn a good thing into a bad thing. Okay? I'll just, I want to give you some evidence that maybe entertainment is part of why we don't always have all the energy we should to exert towards loving God and loving people. In America, we spend $34.6 billion gambling every year. That's just gambling. Video games, $17 billion. Professional sports, $25.4 billion. When you add TV, movies, and music spending, we are easily over $100 billion, which, by the way, could solve the world's need for clean drinking water 10 times. In one year. And I didn't, even, I didn't even spend a bunch of time picking on all of your entertainment idols. I just picked a few. You're welcome. There's a bunch of other ways that we distract ourselves from the main thing. Distraction, absolutely, is one of the tactics of the enemy to keep us uh, from focusing upon and exerting energy towards loving God and loving people. Distraction. The second is deception. Deception. Deception works specifically against your mind. It steals away your ability to do this thing Jesus said, uh, to love with all your soul and with all of your mind. I think it's an interesting thing to note that Jesus is quoting here something from early on in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, when uh, th this, this exact phrase is said, to love the Lord your God, uh, with, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Mind is not included in that Deuteronomy quote. Jesus adds it. Okay, so we got a couple options there. Did Jesus misquote scripture? He just forgot. No, right? Because <laughs> Jesus is the word, right? <laughs> he, he was the word, is the word. He was with God at the beginning. Jesus is God. Jesus didn't forget his own word, okay? So he didn't have a momentary uh, lapse in memory. I think part of what it is is, is this overall principle that when Jesus came to earth, right, and, and, and he came born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, his primary mission was to come and to be the final perfect sacrifice and atonement for the sins of every person throughout history, okay? And so that was Jesus, that was the crescendo of his mission was his death upon the cross and his glorious resurrection. But along the way, part of what he did is he, he revealed to us more the character and the nature and the beauty of God. It's said in a couple places throughout the scriptures that he was the, the expressed image. He was the exact glorious image of God. If you will look at him, he said many times, if you know me, you know the Father. If you understand, if you understand what I'm going to say, if you know how I'm going to react, you know how the Father is going to react. Pay attention, because he and I, were one, right? He talked like that all the time. He said that stuff all the time. That people tried to stone him for it. They didn't like it, right? It's part of what got him killed, because he talked crazy talk, but it was true, 
right? Here's the thing. Why did Jesus add this? Well, first of all, he gets the right to. But secondly, look at exactly what he's dealing with. He's got religious, know-it-all, I got all the answers. These type of guys were just getting in his face, trying to trip him up about stuff. And so in the midst of that context and conversation, he, he adds this thing, right? And, and, and so in, in one degree, he's answering the situation. He's letting these guys know, you know, you... You, you think you've got this all figured out. You think through your, your religious piety that, that somehow you're pleasing God. But what God wants from you is for you to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So he adds that piece in there. But I think it also opens up to us more an understanding of what God desires from us. Um, he does desire that we love him with our mind, right? This is not a mindless faith. This is not an irrational faith. This is not something that we check our brains at the door in order to participate in what it is God has called us to do. We can love God with our minds. They can be engaged in the process and apparently need to be because we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. Um, how, does, how does deception work? A, a lot of times what it looks like, and this is what happened for our first parents, is Satan, in one way or another, somehow will get you convinced that God is trying to keep some good thing from you. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Satan's like, hold on, man. You're not going to die. Here's what will happen. You're going to know stuff God knows. Do you want to know stuff God knows? And it looks good, too, doesn't it? You know what, talking snake, that I'm supposed to be in charge of, by the way? You've got a point. Yeah, let's eat that. That's what happened to our first parents. The, the, the temptation was ultimately God was keeping some good thing from them. God told them what was going to happen, didn't he? That's no good for you. That'll hurt you. Then this, the, the, that, that slithery voice came. No, no, there's, there's something good there that God's holding back from you. God will never, friend, never hold something good back from you. If he prohibits you from something, it's because he wants your greatest good. If he asks you not to do something, it's to protect you from pain. And if he commands you to do something, it's because it's going to lead to greater joy than if you disobey that. If we really believe that, simple premise right there, we'd be much harder to trick from the forces of darkness, and we'd be much more effective in doing what it is God has called us to do in building his kingdom in the earth. Just that right there. To the degree you believe that, you can, you can almost peg how free you're going to be in Christ. Do you believe every command of God is for your good? Whether it's to do something or not to do something. Because then obedience doesn't become a drudgery. So many of us imagine, well, if I could just eat that apple, everything would be great. Figuratively. No. For, what does it look like for us? If, if, I, could, if I could just have that job, if I could just have that relationship, if I could just do that thing, even if I have to disobey God to get there, if, if I can just get there, then it'll be all right. Then I'll be free. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be full of joy. Absolutely not ever, never. It won't go right. It won't go that way for you. Deception. That's how deception works. The fact that Jesus adds with all of your mind into this, this command 
is, is, is one reason why knowledge of God is not a bad thing. Please don't set up in your mind, and I'm not intending to set this up for you, a false dichotomy between love and knowledge, okay? The Bible does say knowledge puffs up, and we just need to be aware of that. It doesn't mean we don't seek after wisdom and knowledge. You just need to understand every single little factoid that you lock into your dome is going to bring with it the, the temptation to be more prideful. Every single time. That's just human nature. The smarter you get, the more tempted you're going to be to feel awesome about yourself. And so the smarter you get, the more time you need to spend with the Lord and be humble, and the more time you need to think about what it looks like to love him and love others so that that, that knowledge doesn't take you to a place where you end up being opposed by God, right? Because he opposes the proud. But knowledge of God is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, how can you love him if you don't know him? You do need to know him. That's why part of why our mind needs to be engaged in this thing. We need to know how God thinks, what God does. We need to understand what his word says about him. I think to some, de- I mean, I think to some degree the, the, the order here is, is informative. There are those that would disagree. I, I think there's a reason why it says, love the Lord with, Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I think there's, some, there's something about, there's a supernatural work that God does in the heart to begin this love relationship with him. I, I, I don't think, I don't really know if any, no matter how many facts you gather about God and salvation and the scriptures, I'm not sure without the spirit of God having done what he does in your heart, you're gonna, you're, you can't totally get it without him doing that anyway. So this isn't gonna be a head thing first. It's gonna be God doing something miraculous in the heart first, but the head needs to follow and it needs to be involved. And as you grow in love for God, part of how that's going to look is as you increase in knowledge of him, um, you're going to love him more and more, the more you know about him. Uh, I think Peter speaks to this in 1 Peter 1.8. He says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's speaking to people that didn't get to walk with Jesus like he got to. But by a supernatural work of the power of the Spirit, they believed in him. And they believed in him, and they loved him. And they wanted to know him. Knowledge of God is a good thing, something to be sought after. Knowledge of his scripture is something good to be sought after. And we need to love God with the entirety of our minds. Understanding that any of that knowledge is a gift from him. The very fact that we can put thoughts together and and understand anything of what he's doing is a gift from him. And so we should stay humble in the midst of that pursuit. I think distraction makes it hard for us to love God uh, with all of our heart, soul, strength, and soul, mind, and strength. I think deception also is another tactic of the enemy. The third and last thing is devastation. Devastation. And, and, and when I say that, I think this, this works primarily against your heart. I think devastation keeps you from being able to love God with your whole heart. It affects the other things as well. Um, and when it affects the heart, I think it affects those other things. But devastation, and I'm talking about difficulty of, of the deepest kind. I don't mean, I don't mean uh, you got a flat tire, okay? And I know for some of you that's a, that's a major deal. That's an event, man. I'm, I'm questioning everything I know about God because my tire is flat. Keep coming <laughs> and keep seeking after the knowledge of God. We'll get you past the point where you have, you're having an existential crisis when you get a flat tire. But the, the point, I'm talking about deep things that should shake you, man. Things, devastation, difficulty in this life. And I'm not talking about just, 
I'm not talking about just this pain, suffering, and evil like in the world. I'm talking also in our personal life. Satan uses the evil and darkness and the difficulty in this world and in our personal sphere to bring accusation against God's loving character. He's trying to use devastation to keep you from really loving God. And one way to interpret all of the tragedy and darkness in the world is to conclude that God is either not good or not powerful or both, right? That's where Lex Luthor got in the most recent Superman movie, right? He had that that whole quandary. Um, It's not original. This question's been around a long time. This accusation's been around a long time. If there's so much evil in the world, then either God's not good or he's not powerful. And if that's true, if that was true... We shouldn't love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? I don't think so. He needs to be who the Bible claims he is for for us to give all of our full allegiance to him and to love him the way that I believe he deserves. The question is, is that the right conclusion? You can interpret all of the tragedy and darkness in the world um, to mean that God's not loving or God's not powerful, but the question is, is that the right conclusion? Many times people will say, that God's foreknowledge of all future events makes him culpable or responsible for evil. They will ask, um, if he knew so much bad was going to happen, then why create it all? And I, I promise you, I've, I've asked these questions. I think if you're a thinking person and you really, like, you really pay attention to what it is the Bible says about God, the state of the world, wh- what everything actually looks like, you could come, you, you probably will come to the question of why create it all. If God fully understood and had all foreknowledge of future events, knew all the evil that was going to happen, there's been a lot, all the suffering, all the pain, then why create it all? And I would just ask you, friends, to please consider that the pain, suffering, and darkness in the world is not an indictment against God's good character, but it's ironclad proof of it. I think if we just flip that and understand it from a different perspective, I think we'll see. And I don't, I realize what some people do, especially in like a, on the philosophy side of things, people will just say things a different way and think that changes the implications. I'm not trying to do that, I promise. I really think the implications are different. I really think there's a, there's a way to see this that is right, to understand it that is correct, and it's the perspective from which God sees it. Here's, here's the bottom line. God did know. God is per- God, the Bible is very clear. God is the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. He is infinite and eternal, exists outside of time. His foreknowledge is perfect. He knows absolutely everything that's going to happen. Okay? That brings me a lot of comfort. So glad he knows what's going on. Because I don't. Right? You with me on that? Maybe you do. Maybe you got a Miss Cleo somewhere. Quit calling that. Okay? That's demonic. Now, back to this. God did know what was going to happen. Okay? And, and, and here's the thing. He has endured the pain of creating us anyways. And he has promised a day is coming that if you will receive the gift of his love and grace and mercy, every single thing that sin destroyed is going to be restored. And here's something else he says. He's going to wipe every single tear from our eyes. Friends, God did know. He absolutely knows. He knew before he created us. Get this. Think about this. Does this make him good or bad? He knew before he created our first parents and put them in the garden what they would do. He knew that that was going to cost him incredible amounts of effort and strain and struggle 
the, the culmination of that being, sending one of the members of the Trinity, his very own beloved son, to the earth to be born of a peasant virgin, to live a perfect life, and then be slaughtered publicly by the people he was sent to save. He knew that was going to happen before he ever pulled the trigger and made Adam. Does that make him good or does that make him bad? I, don't, I, don't, I can't understand any other way to see it other than he is incredibly good. And every single thing about the fact that the world is jacked that bothers you and me, primarily I would say, for me, there's a lot of suffering in the world. There's a lot of devastation as a result of the fact that the world is not the way it was created to be at this point because it's cursed. The worst of it is that there's a bunch of people that are going to reject God's loving call. They're going to reject the fact that he is waiting patiently because he seeks and desires for all to come to repentance. There's a bunch of people that are going to reject that and they're not going to spend eternity with him. And that is the worst, man. That is terrible to think about. But ultimately, is the fact that they reject him. Is the fact that they reject his multiple over and over again loving call to receive this love and grace and mercy. The fact that he is making that call. What does that say about him? I think he is loving. I think he deserves our love in return. However much any, any part of the brokenness of sin and all of its consequences that bothers us, does some of it bother you? I hope it does. Are there implications to the fact that the world is not like it should be? Does that bother you? It should. There are things that should grieve you at the level of your soul. However much it grieves us, however much it pains us, think about this. If God is infinitely all-knowing, and if he is infinitely loving, every single thing that bothers us has to cause him an infinite amount more pain. Are you tracking with that? I know I'm talking about some big ideas in, in the character and nature of God, but I don't think, I think you can grasp what I'm talking about. If God is infinitely loving, infinite in knowledge... You're aware of a bunch of messed up stuff, are you not? Your personal life. You have access to the news, right? There's a bunch of stuff in the world that is horrendous and tragic and terrible. You, you, can, you can see that there's a bunch of things that are wrong. And this grieves us. God is aware of absolutely every implication, every terrible, tragic implication of sin throughout all of history. The ones you know about, the ones nobody knows about. He feels the pain of all of that infinitely more than you can. And he still made us. That's a high price, friends. And why? Well, the Bible says he loves us. There's multiple motivations for God's creation. His glory is one of them. One of them also is his love. God desired to have relationship with a, a, a race of beings. Some, apparently, his, he's so loving, his relationship with the angels was, was, was not sufficient. And I'm not saying he created us because he needed us. It's very important that you understand that. But it's even better. 
He didn't need us, but apparently he wanted us and wanted us so bad, he was willing to suffer all that he's going to have to suffer and has suffered in order to create us and deal with us. But the Bible says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross. Friend, uninterrupted, eternal relationship with you was the joy set before him. That's a good God. That's a loving God. That's a God deserving of your love and affection and your obedience. I hope you see it. I hope you believe it. As I said before, tragically, some will reject this incredible love and mercy, but please remember, however much that bothers us, it breaks the heart of God infinitely more. I want to read you a verse again. I read it at the beginning. I want, you, I want to read it to you. I want you to listen and think about it in terms of the context of what we just spoke about. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, some of you are going to be tempted to sit and theologically dice that into pieces. Would you just stop for a second and receive it for what it says? Listen to that. He's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I realize some of you have a system that makes that verse hard for you. Don't just, just stop with, for a second with the system. Would you, would you let the truth of this scripture comfort your heart and understand this, this is the truth about God? We're, figure it out in your system later. Just, just take this for what it is. He's patient towards you because he's waiting because he wants as many as possible. He desires for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's good. and He's loving. It's cost him a lot for you to exist. Just you, man. Would you forget the whole world for a second? Think about what you've cost him. I mean, are you thankful he let you into this thing? I mean, existence. I don't even mean salvation. Furthermore, he brought you into the fold, man, and made you a son or daughter of God. As much trouble as I've been, the very fact that he gave me breath, I wouldn't have made that call. I wouldn't have. I know how much trouble I would have been, man. It would just been better to just, just leave that one uncreated. What mercy. What love must drive that divine decision-making? Let your hearts be stirred, friends. And let, let yourself judge your life and ask, do I, do I respond to that by the minute in the way I live and think and speak? Do I live out that reality, the beauty of that kind of love? To varying degrees, I know many of us do, but... We will never match that, and so we can pursue it forever with passion. Last piece of evidence from the scriptures on that. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's loving
He has demonstrated his love towards us. He hasn't made it hard to understand. He hasn't made it hard to believe. Part of the problem is we're distracted and deceived and oftentimes devastated. And we just don't see. The truth is right here, friends. Please receive it. Please live in light of it. Please don't treat this as a common thing. Well, there he goes again. Love God, love people. We got it, buddy. No. No. No, you don't. None of us do. We'll keep talking about this forever. If there's campfires in heaven, we'll sit around and talk about this. You believe that. I, just, I suppose they'll light themselves there. It's just my assumption, but... Maybe not. I called dibs. If loving God and loving people is as important as the scriptures say it is, then we should pray daily and ask God to help us understand the depth of love and to obey whatever love requires. Did you hear that? If, if this is true, if loving God and loving people is as important as the scriptures say, okay, you got to decide, do you believe that? I do then I need to be praying daily for God to help me understand the depth of love and to obey whatever love requires. I know as much time as I've spent thinking about this subject, I have but scratched the surface of the depth and beauty and wonder, magnificence and majesty of the love of God, what it requires of me and what it means that God has said he loves me. I've not yet even begun to drink some of that sweet, deep water of the well of God's love. Just skim the top. And so I need to pray daily that God would help me understand more, open my eyes farther, the eyes of my understanding, my heart, and that he would empower me to obey whatever love would require of me. Understanding love through the lens of Christ on the cross eradicates any notion that unconditional love means unconditional affirmation. Actually, it's quite the opposite. I couldn't say all this about love and leave room for the misunderstanding that if love is defined by Christ on the cross, that what unconditional love means is unconditional affirmation. The cross screams loudly, you have sinned. It also at the same time screams loudly, I have the answer because you don't have one. If love is defined by what Jesus has done on the cross and is personified by what Jesus did as he walked this earth, right? Because if he's the expressed image of God, if he is if he's the best shot we have at understanding our, our infinite God, then, then what was Jesus like? How did he love? Did, did he love Peter? Did he love his disciples? Yes, he said so on multiple occasions. He proved it, right? Stooped down and washed their feet, invested in them. Jesus loved his disciples. Did he correct his disciples? Did he let them know if what they were saying or doing or thinking was sinful? This isn't a trick question. Yes. Get thee behind me, Satan, is a quote from Jesus to Peter. Okay, so not only did he tell the truth, he, just, he said it straight. He didn't even sprinkle much sugar on it, right? Here's what I'm saying to you. Let us, let us just not live in the delusion that what love looks like is, is, is always just patting people on the head and sending them on their merry way to destruction. Oftentimes what love is going to require is the potential conflict that comes in saying, hey, what you're doing 
is disobedient to God and it's going to lead to pain for you. Please stop. Now, don't ever do that if your motive, if you're glad that you get to tell somebody they're wrong or they're sinning. Don't ever do it. Just keep your mouth shut because you're not going to help. Stay out of it. God will send someone that actually loves them to correct them, okay? But if you really love somebody and you see that they're on fire and they can't tell, please don't smile and say, see you next time. Pour some water on them, even if they get mad about it, right? Let them know they're in trouble. That's, that's what love looks like. You are receiving a vibrant and, uh, and vicious counter message all the time to what I'm saying right here. So I'm asking you to define what, what speaking truth and what love looks like through Jesus and not through what culture is trying to get you to swallow, which is, uh, well, you know, who am I to judge? And, um, you know, if I, if I love you, then I got to accept you the way you are. No, man, God loves us so much. He takes us like we are, but then he takes us and begins to change us into something that's going to be less painful and more joyful. He's bringing us and conforming us into his image. We are not God, but we are called to love like him. And so sometimes what you're going to have to do is tell somebody the truth in love. Love without truth isn't love. Truth without love isn't truth. Those go together. All right? Praise God. Uh, your excitement level about that is, is off the charts, just so you know. Uh, get a little nervous about crowd control here. I know, I know it's deep, and I know the implications are difficult, and I know many of you are running the grid of your own life and situations you've avoided because you've bought all that mess or things that you, you know you need to speak into, or some of you are like, I need some things spoke to me, right? So I realized why the room was quiet, and that wasn't a big amen, let's get out the praise banner and dance situation. I'm, I'm okay with that, because I know God moves in groups of people that are super excited and, and screaming in, in jubilee, and God's also moving in situations where people are dead silent because the Holy Spirit's working on them. So I'm, I'm cool with either one. Praise God, amen, hallelujah. I'll say hallelujah about it. I'm glad, man. And I'm glad, I know there's a handful of people in here that love me enough that if I go sideways stupid, man, you will get in my grill and cause problems for me. Amen. That's what love looks like, and I, I want it, man. I hope you do too. May we be a people who never cease to stoke the coals and fan the flames of love for God and love for people. May we realize that we will never graduate beyond the need to grow in our understanding and obedience to the call of love. And may we pray for the grace and strength to pursue these things for our good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, O oh God, for your mercy on us today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are patient and long-suffering, seeking that none should perish, but you desire that all would come to repentance we thank you, O oh God, that your love is infinite in its beauty and its application. We thank you, God, uh, that you have set your eyes upon us as the object of affection. Um, I oftentimes, I cannot come up with the same conclusion you did, that we are worth it. But I'm so thankful that you did, God. I'm so thankful that your love for us caused you to push past all the pain we would cause you, all the, all the suffering and all of the, the anguish, that you, you have this vision and, and you're, 
you're working towards it. You have this, this beautiful vision in your mind of, of us, those of us that love you and receive your grace and mercy, us and you forever. And so all of the pain and all of the difficulty, somehow you've calculated it's worth it to have us. And so God, we look forward to that great and glorious day where the tears are wiped by your very sovereign hands from our eyes. When every single thing that has been destroyed because of sin is restored. And God, we commit by the power of your spirit to be agents of love and reconciliation in the meantime. Lord, help us to desire above all else, above all the, the, the trinkets and entertainments, the things that draw our eyes to the right and to the left, all the deceptions and lies we buy into. God, help our desire to be fixed upon knowing you more, loving you more faithfully, and loving people as a result of that relationship between us and you. Thank you, God, that you anoint us for the things you ask us to do, that you give us the power of your spirit to accomplish them. Thank you that you don't give us these things that in and of ourselves absolutely would be impossible and leave us to, to, to flounder and fail and try. But Lord, you empower us to do these things. God, help us to, help us to seek after that instead of the things we so often seek after. God, we love you. We love you. And we, we are so thankful that you love us. And God, we ask as your people, we ask for the anointing of your spirit to love this world well. God, may we reflect the depth and beauty and power of your love to every person we come in contact with. We worship you, Master. We trust you for these things. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org. Dot org.